0: Welcome to the final Sunday of 2024, Uh, Next or 2023, wow, hello. Um, Next week, we will jump back into the Book of Mark, and currently on the schedule, we have five more sermons in Mark, uh, and then we come to the close of that, and we haven't finalized what the next series will be, but we're still working on that, and so we'll get that to you, and we discover that. Uh, before that starts, though, even though this is the last Sunday for Nick and Olivia as they move on to the, the post that God is placing them on, uh, they will be back uh, February eighteenth. Nick is going to preach for us here, so we look forward to that. Uh, Matulas, we do we love you. We will miss you. We it's been wonderful uh, joy to watch God work in you and grow you, and uh, we've benefited from your ministry to us. So thank you. Uh, we, uh, today, we go uh, to part two of a sermon series uh, that started January 1st last year. Uh, this is going to be a very long series. Uh, this is once a year, basically. Uh, so this one uh, it's called Drip by Drip, uh, Cultivating Consistent Bible uh, Reading. And I realize some of you weren't here last year, uh, so you can find the first uh, part one on the website if you desire to listen to it. And some of you were here, and you probably don't remember it anyhow, and that's okay. I usually forget uh, what I say by Tuesday anyhow. But you can find it on there if, you'd, if you would like to. But So this is part two, drip by drip, cultivating consistent Bible reading. And you might ask, you know, why, why is it worth pausing and talking about Bible reading again? And I'll give you at least two answers here for that because it's worth considering. Uh, I think the first reason why this is worth spending some time on this morning is because we believe the promise in First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, if you're still there. We believe the promise, and I'm not saying we as myself or just the elder team, but we collectively, those who are followers of Jesus, if you are a worshiper of Christ, you believe the promise that's stated here in verse 13, uh, look at that again. Uh, we all this is the Apostle Paul speaking. We also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the Word of God this is the church in Thessalonica, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the Word of men, but for what it really is. It is the Word of God which is at work in you believers. Now notice what it says there, the Word of God, when, when the church received it, it went to work in them. You see? some of you probably experienced something like this over the holidays maybe if you gathered with family and you watched a young child five-year-old six-year-old grab another cookie and then another cookie and then a brownie and something went on in your mind you said oh man this is not going to be good because when a little kid keeps eating sweets like that something's going to happen they don't remain neutral anymore because that, that goes inside of them and it doesn't work in them that is going to come outside of them right Uh, The way I used to talk about this is when I was a kid, uh, if if some of you might remember Jolt Cola, that was uh, twice the caffeine. So I was in junior high when my buddies and I wanted to drink this stuff, and the parents were not excited. They didn't want junior high boys at a sleepover drinking Jolt Cola. Why? Because when, when junior high boys drink Jolt Cola, they don't remain neutral, right? Something happens inside of them, and it begins to come on the outside. What Paul is saying here is that when the Word of God comes, it, it does something inside. It doesn't remain neutral. It changes people from the inside out. It does a work in them. And so we might ask, well, how does it change them? Well, last year, one of the points we talked about is, is the benefit of memorizing the promises of God about the Word of God, what the Word of God will do in the life of God's people. So like Psalm 1, it makes them like trees that are stable in an unstable, unstable world. Or Romans 15, 4, that it gives hope to God's people. Uh, Psalm 19, that it causes rejoicing to happen in the heart or reviving the soul and making wise the simple, right? And, And we could go on. It teaches us, it corrects us, it rebukes us, it trains us in righteousness. The word of God goes inside and changes people and forms us more into the image of Christ. That's what Paul is getting at here. But notice who it does it for in the passage. Look at it again, verse 13. You received as really, really is the word of God, which is at work in you, believers. And the passage actually goes on to demonstrate that some people heard the word of God from the church, and they rejected it. They opposed it. So a lot of times, the word of God goes out, and it just bounces right off people. But in the believers, that's what Paul gets at there, those who worship Jesus, the word goes in, and it changes them. It cannot leave them neutral. And so I I think that there is this intuitive gut belief in God's people that believes that, that that believe God truly, if I put myself before God's word, he will change me from within. And so our task then is, uh, much like a gardener, places a tomato plant in the path where it's going to receive the resources that needs to grow, like the sun and the water, our role is to place our hearts under the Word of God, place it in the Word of God, and allow God to do the work. So if you think of a gardener, a gardener does not have the power to cause a tomato plant to grow. But what a gardener can do is place the tomato plant in the place in the yard where it will receive the most sun and the best water. That's why you don't plant a tomato plant underneath a big tree place it out where it can get the resources it needs. And that's our task as followers of God, as followers of Jesus. So I, I believe that all of us believe that. That's the p- first point, so it's worth just considering. Uh, the second point, though, is that we struggle with this. I think all of God's people who are truly born again have this intuitive sense that God's word is something I need. The problem is we all struggle with it. Or most of us struggle with it. We struggle to consistently do it. And when that goes on, it leads to being disheartened, to being discouraged. Discouraged at best, at worst, it causes us to wonder if we even know God. So there's this turmoil in the soul. Now, we're not going to talk about obstacles to our reading uh, today. Maybe we'll do that one next, next year. I mean, I just spent a few minutes just writing down obstacles to consistent Bible reading. I came up with 17, like, just like that. So we don't have time to do that today, maybe we'll hit that one next year or a couple years from now. But there's a lot of reasons why we struggle with this. And when that happens, over and again, over and again, we try, we fail, we try, we fail, you start to get disheartened. But take heart, if that's you, if you've experienced that, that is a wonderful sign. It's a a great sign to know that you're disheartened by it, because here's the thing, an unbeliever is not bothered that they struggle to read God's word. That, that doesn't bother them at all. They just keep moving on. But if it bothers you, that is a sign of the Spirit of God. That's a sign of the grace of God at work, stirring you up. And that's good. That's good. That is a great, great sign. And so this morning, then, as we think about this, this the goal is not to, I'm not here to be sort of a wagging the finger and shame on you as, as some sort of a judge, like, that's terrible, you ought to be doing better. This is, think of this more as like a, a pre-game locker room speech. We're all together. We're all going to be playing in the game, reminding, like, this is what we've done. This is who we are. Let's go out. Let's, let's go out and get on the field and we'll go win, win a game. This is to, to try to help one another keep moving forward. So think about it that way. Uh, over the years, I've collected a, a list of helps. So how, how do we pursue cultivating consistent Bible reading? A lot of these I've gotten from other people. Uh, so. Like I said, last year I had 42. I whittled them down to 40. So again, this will take us several years to get through. Last year we did five. Our goal is to do six today. Uh, Six helps. I I have them separated into three categories. Uh, Expectations. Second is mindset, not mindset, motivations. And then third, are uh, on the ground helps, like kind of practical things you can do. Uh, so first we're gonna hit the expectat- one expectation, then we'll hit four on the ground tips that you can try, and then last we'll hit w- one of the motivations, yeah? All right, let's, let's jump in here, expectation. Uh, expectation, as you know, in a lot of pursuits in life, having the right expectation is crucial. If you have the wrong expectation, you might be setting yourself up for failure. And for this one, you can go back to the first passage Matt read in 1 Timothy 4. If we are going to try to cultivate consistent Bible reading, one expectation that is crucial to have is that it will require soul sweat. Soul sweat. Any sort of dream that you have that you're going to reach a time where Bible reading will just be easy and you'll always just desire it, you can let that one die. That's not going to happen this side of glory. Pursuing to cultivate a consistent life of Bible intake, that is going to require soul sweat. So if you, if you think about, uh, if you were planning to, you wanted to run a marathon uh, this spring, there's certain expectations that you would have to have, otherwise you're going to give up. So, for example, you, you, you just expect that you're going to have some sore muscles along the way, right? I mean, you're going to be doing a lot of running for the next several months. You would expect that. Uh, you would expect a lot of mental challenges, especially as it gets cold out and you've got to go out and run and you're tired and you didn't get much sleep. That There's going to be a lot of mental challenges. You have to be prepared for that. And, of course, you would be expecting a lot, a lot of bodily sweat, right? Because this is what's required in the training. And if we're going to cultivate consistent Bible reading, it's going to take a lot of soul sweat, so, take a look at uh, chapter 4 of 1 Timothy here, uh, beginning in verse uh, 6 again. If you put these things, he's talking to Timothy, young pastor, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irrever- irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness for while bodily training is of some value godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come now that word there in verse 7 rather train yourself for godliness others uh, translate this as, as discipline yourself for godliness that that word is actually one of the places where uh, people have gone to 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 use the uh, that you've probably heard of spiritual disciplines Spiritual disciplines are practices that that God uh, uses as a means of grace to God's people. So there's these practices that are for the purpose of growing us in Christ, for the purpose of us knowing God more. So practices like prayer, practices like fasting and fellowship. These are are practices or disciplines, spiritual disciplines, uh, that God uses as a means of grace to pour out grace to us to shape us more into the image of Christ. And one of the major ones is Bible intake because Scripture has to actually govern and guide all of those other practices. It's not like you do fasting, but the Bible doesn't matter. Scripture is supposed to govern all of that. So Bible intake is sort of the the linchpin, uh, one at the center of spiritual disciplines. And this word here, rather train yourself, uh, it's just dripping with sweat. The the word actually, Paul's using a word that actually comes out of athletics. And so uh, in those days, they would do a lot of competitions and such, and you had to train yourself. And so he's grabbing a word that actually, uh, now our word gymnasium comes from this. So this this is just uh, dripping with sweat itself, and he actually gives the illustration for us. He says, hey, you, you guys know that bodily training, discipline, has value. But training for godliness has more value. So he's, he's, he's ranking these here a little bit, comparing them. But he's, he's saying, look, you, you know what an athlete does in order to get ready for the competition. In order to do that, they have to deny themselves a lot. They're constantly, constantly saying no to other desires that they have inside of them because they want to win the competition. And it takes a, a hard focus on them. And it takes repetition after repetition after repetition of exerting themselves and sweating for the sake of the competition. And one of, the, one of the things I actually I love to, to watch are, are stories about like people that are elite in a craft, uh, whether it be athletics or this translate to other things like writing, uh, playing an instrument, singing, art. Someone that has really become elite in a craft, generally speaking, most of the time, it's not that they're just super abnormal. Yes, sometimes, you know, a Shaquille O'Neal or something, a, a guy that big, is, has a better advantage to be good at basketball than, say, myself. But by and large, a lot of it is just because the, the athlete or the musician or the artist is willing to do the same thing again and again and again and again and again and again and again when they don't want to because they have a goal in mind. And I, re- I remember as a kid, you know, I played T-ball as a kid. Right? It's where you don't have a pitcher. If it's baseball, you don't have a pitcher. You just put a tee up there, and you hit. Everybody knows tee ball, right? Um, so playing tee ball, I remember when when finally tee ball was over, and we got to move to you know somebody's pitching the ball. And that was a great day, and I thought I'm never going back to the tee. This is uh, this is awesome, like having pitching and stuff. And so for the next couple of years, I I never looked at a tee again. And then I finally get to high school, and out brings the coach a tee. And he's got me hitting on a tee. And I thought, what am I? I'm not going backwards. I'm moving up here, buddy. And come to find out, the more I advance, like by the time I get to college and I, I played outfield, and that's all I did for most practices is just hit off the tee again and again. And again. same thing, same swing. And if you know me now, I still hit off the tee in my garage. It's not because I'm some elite hitter anymore, but I want to become that. And the only way to become that is to just do the same thing over and over and over and over and over again. Not when you love it all the time. In fact, some of the times it's excruciating. You're not enjoying yourself at all, but you have a a purpose in it. And Paul here using this analogy and saying, look, if we want to pursue godliness, Christ-likeness is going to require sweat. We will have to train ourselves. It's going to be sweat of the soul. Now the thing is, this is not like some isolated kind of picture that he uses. Fourteen out of the uh, uh, what is it? The twenty? How many new Te- twenty-seven New Testament books? Fourteen out of twenty-seven use some sort of imagery related to the Christian life as boxing or a race in Hebrews or uh, Ephesians six that that it's put on armor. Uh, First Peter, it's war. Lust wages war against you. So the the New Testament is is dripping with this type of language. The Christian life is a battle. Like Joby was saying earlier, we're either swimming downstream or we're swimming upstream, and we're going against it, and it's battle. And so this is what we should expect. If if we're going to cultivate consistent Bible reading, it's going to be hard. There's going to be a lot of days you don't want to do it. Now, Someone might ask, uh, well, how, what about God's grace, God's empowering grace? Is, is soul sweat in opposition to God's empowering grace? How do those work together? We won't spend a lo- long time on this. And by the way, the, the first, uh, this first point takes longer than all the rest of them. So don't, don't get the idea, like, oh, man, we're doing six of these. Uh, so let's see. So just so we think about how does God's grace then work with my sweat? How, how do those go together? Just a couple places we could go to. Uh, Philippians 2 here. Uh, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because it is God who works in you, both to work for his good pleasure, to work in. Uh, to will and to work for his good pleasure so notice what he says there I want you to work this is the idea You're gonna, it's going to be a battle this is fight you've got to work out your salvation you have to live it out why? because God's working in you so God's grace and our work our sweat are not in opposition it's in fact our sweat is actually empowered by God's grace God empowers us to actually do the work but it's not that we just go well God's grace is at work so I can just he'll kind of just do it that's, that's not how this works we actually keep continuing to move forward in faith that God will give us the power as we move forward. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, it says Paul's kind of his own testimony about himself. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I but the grace of God that was with me." So there, Paul, giving his own testimony as well. I, I, that, it was a lot of work. I poured a lot of sweat into that. But it wasn't me, it was God's grace in me. It doesn't negate God, uh, Paul needing to work hard. It doesn't somehow the sweat goes away or just easy. It's actually very hard, he says. I worked very hard, but God's grace did it in me. So they're not opposed to it, one another. First Peter, so you see, see it from a different author. As each of you has received a gift, Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. And there you see it again. It's, it's not necessarily like God's going to pour out grace on us and we just like walk around like robots and it's just going to happen. We actually feel like most of the time it just feels very normal. Like we are exerting a lot of effort and yet scriptures say it's God is the one at work in you. Here's something you can find all over Scripture. This is uh, David going up against Goliath. David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host... uh, I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day, to the birds of the air and to wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's and will give you into our hand. So you can find this all over Scripture that the battle is the Lord's and yet David still had to step forward, he still had to grab a stone, he still had to take the risk, swing it around and fling it at the Philistine, not knowing what would happen. God's grace, God's Battle and David's battle are not in opposition. So, who won the battle there? Was it David or was it Goliath? The answer is both, but it was God, is ultimate, right? God is the one who won the battle, yet, David had to step forward and uh, actually do the battle. So, we we see this all over. I love the illustration that Jerry Bridges gives in Disciplines of Grace. Uh, He says he uses the example of an airplane, that the airplane has two wings. And if we think of God's grace, God's empowering grace, and our sweat, and they go together. And you can't just get rid of our effort and think that the plane's going to fly. It's going to go down. You can't get rid of God's grace and think that our effort's going to win. That won't work either. They have to be flying in concert. And indeed, God's grace empowers our effort. So why, why is this important? To know that our, our soul must sweat. Well, if you assume it's going to be easy, you're going to be very discouraged within a week. On the other side, if it never feels like battle, if it never feels like sweat, that, that actually might be a cause for concern sometimes because perhaps we're going downstream. There actually should feel some sort of a battle. Uh, but last, uh, if, if you experience soul sweat this, this year, uh, seeking to write, read your Bible... There's nothing wrong with you. You're not doing something wrong. And that's one of the things that we tend to think sometimes is, I must just be the messed up one. Everybody else is getting along. That's just not true. There's nothing wrong with you. All right, let's go to number two. Uh, these next ones will be faster. Uh, now we're going to on-the-ground tips. What, what, what can I do? If I want to cultivate consistent Bible reading uh, in the coming days, what, what can I do? Um, I would say keep your goals realistic. Uh, There's been various studies that have uh, demonstrated that we're not necessarily really great at keeping New Year's resolutions. Uh, In fact, a 2020 study uh, said that we, on average, keep them 32 days. Now, I I must say I've contributed to that stat, uh, keeping it low like that. Um, We're not always the best at it. The thing is, like, when you set a New Year's resolution, if you talk to people, a lot of times people are excited about them. You don't typically set a resolution because you you don't want to do it. You're envisioning something in the new year that you want to get better at, and you're trying to envision yourself, yes, I want to do that. I want to experience that. So there's some excitement. So what happens within 32 days where the the resolution gets lost? I mean, we could probably say a number of things. I think probably a, a, a big one is that sometimes we bite off a little bit too much than we can chew. Like our expectations are way too high for ourselves. And I think that's a present danger when it comes to Bible reading. Uh, it's not uncommon, as I've talked with people, that people struggle to read. And when they set a goal, the, the goal can sometimes be too high. And that's probably coming out of very good heart. Like, if you've ever done that, that, that that's probably a sign that you, you love the Lord and you, you want to read the scriptures. That's a, that's a great sign. So it's not that I would discourage your heart from wanting that. It's just incrementally what, what will actually get us there. Uh, so you might think of it kind of a more like this, like starting out with a, a small snowball. You're on the top of the hill, and you just push it over the hill, and you, 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 you let that grow over time. So you think of two people. Say a person A uh, has the goal. Neither one of them are reading – both people are not reading their Bible very much at all, right? They both set goals. Person A sets the goal of half an hour a day. feels like he or she has heard stories of other believers doing that, and they feel like, I can do that. I, I had that margin in my schedule, a half hour a day. Other person, person B, uh, does it, their goal is five minutes a day. Quite unimpressive. Person A uh, starts off pretty good for the first week. Second week maybe hits five days. Third week misses a good portion, jumps jumps, gets back on the, the wagon the fourth week. And overall, uh, over the course of uh, four months, uh, person A has done about 50% of the time. Now, over the course of four months, that, that is 30 hours, roughly, of reading. That's great. Uh, 30 hours of Bible reading, four months. Person B, because their goal was fairly small, five minutes, just trying to get that snowball started, They've kept with it most days. They've made it through the whole year, and they, too, have read the Bible 30, 30 hours. So person A and person B have done the same amount. The good thing about person B is that they've begun a habit and that they can always add to it. What gets very discouraging, if you've ever experienced this, is when you can't keep your, your goals and you have to shrink them. It's always more enjoyable to say, you know what? I'm, I'm doing well with five minutes. I'm going to go to seven. Like, that's always more encouraging and so, uh, w- what I would say uh, is, f- when you're thinking about goals for Bible reading, there's a couple factors to think about. One, how much are you currently reading? Like that, take that into consideration, as well as where do you feel like your biblical literacy is at this time. Uh, meaning, are there certain books of the Bible where you automatically know that are going to be very hard for you to understand, uh, or books that? Um, that you've tried reading and found very discouraging for you. Worth taking into account, if there's books like that, you might want to stay away from them at the outset. Obviously, we want to get to a place where we can read all of Scripture. God says all of Scripture is profitable for us. But there are certainly books that are harder to read. And you might say, if, if for example, you're not reading much, you know, four, six days a month, you might start with something simple. Say, I'm going to read the Bible every day for five, five minutes. That's it. I'm going to start in the book of Matthew. The book of Mark, the book of Luke, the book of John, the book of Psalms, the book of Genesis. These books that are a little bit more easy to understand. Uh, And then, you know, you, you don't have to say, I'm going to do it every day for the year. You might say, I'm going to do it for the next two months. It just, it feels a little bit more manageable at that point. So what you want to do is set the bar that you're going to have to soul sweat a little bit. But it's realistic that you can actually see yourself continuing this on. And you've probably done this with working out or something like that or a lot of other things. So just let's try to be realistic, uh, and that will be much better in uh, the long run. Number three, uh, on the ground. Uh, so if you have a plan or, or whatnot, I would say it's good to vary your strategy, your reading strategies. So there's, there's two main reading strategies here, right? There is uh, reading for breadth, and there's reading for depth. Right? Reading for breadth is like trying to understand as much of the storyline of Scripture as possible. So that's typically when people think about like reading the, all the Bible in a year or something like that. Uh, that's reading for breadth. It's, you're not necessarily stopping and examining every passage. You have questions along the way, but you don't, you're not really answering those. You're just moving forward. Oftentimes it's three, four chapters a day. If you read three chapters a day, you'll get through the whole scriptures in a year. Uh, Oftentimes people do a four in the most popular plan uh, because you'll do the New Testament twice. When you're doing that, you're typically just reading through. You're not stopping. That's reading for breadth. For depth, that's when people read maybe a chapter a day or a half a chapter a day. You're just reading what's called a pericope, a thought. One thought from the author, it might be a paragraph or two paragraphs, and you're really, tr- you're really trying to dive in, slowly meditate, marinate on the passage. That's reading for depth. Both of those are good. And sometimes uh, it's good to have a variation of that, go back and forth. So you might do this one method for three months, another method for the next three months or something like that, or do it for a year and switch for a year. Uh, this is not a command. This is, think of this as permission, uh, for, for whatever reason, sometimes we get locked into thinking that, well, a good a good Bible reading plan has to look like this. And there just isn't one. If you're willing to get into the scriptures, there's a ton of ways to get into it. And I'm not going to tell you what plan you have to have. All of them are good. I have a list of 17 plans, I think it is. There's a website that you can create your own plan. And just find one that works for you. But be willing to... to Uh, move your strategies around. Uh, This can be good because the breadth can actually help us understand the depth reading, and the depth reading will help us understand the breadth reading, as well as, for some of us, change keeps us engaged. All right, see, I told you we're moving along fast here now. Uh, Number four uh, is to utilize external resources that are helpful for you. So a couple key words here, uh, or external resources, meaning not just the Bible itself, but books outside of the Bible that are helping you understand the Bible. The key here, though, is that are helpful. They're not distracting for you, but for you. Some of these resources are going to be helpful for one person that are not helpful for the next person. So what, part of this, what you have to do is figure out yourself. What is actually going to help you have a meaningful time in the Scriptures by yourself or with someone else that's not going to be distracting and it's going to help promote consistency for you? So uh, let me talk about external resources a little bit. There's two basic categories that you can think about them. On one category are external resources that are used as a part of what you would call devotional reading. Devotional reading means like private reading, private communing with God in the scriptures. Uh, There's certain resources that are used as part of that. So for example, uh, a commentary would be a resource that some people use while they're reading the Scriptures. Right? A commentary is where an author uh, walks through the passage, they're giving details, they're giving, answering questions. Sometimes that's line for line, sometimes that's more thought for thought, or chapter by chapter, depending on what commentary you have. Uh, but people will use commentaries as they read. Uh, other th- resource would be a devotional, that would be uh, something like uh, there's Today in the Word by Moody uh, Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon has a very famous one, Morning and Evening. Uh, This would be a resource that an author has written about a passage of Scripture, and people will then read the devotional that's pointing them to a passage of Scripture, and they're giving thoughts on uh, the passage. That's a a devotional. Uh, We also have Study Bibles. Uh, that's somewhat like a commentary, but it's going to be much more bare bones. So it's going to have the passage of Scripture on the top, typically the study notes on the bottom, and they're referencing certain questions that might you, a reader might have in the text. Uh, this, you got the ESV study Bible, a ton of uh, study Bibles out there. And then you have what's actually like Bible study books, so a uh, Bible study on the book of Ephesians, a Bible study on a topic like friends or faithfulness or something like that. And it's just it's gathering uh, material to walk you through a specific topic or a specific book. The other type then are resources that people use apart from their reading that are helping their reading in general. So like overview books of the Bible, God's big picture would be one. Uh, Or overviews of a book of the Bible like the Bible Project, Uh, We'll walk through the book of Galatians for you and give you the themes. Uh, Or there's how to read the Bible books. There's a lot of resources out there, and I would say most of them are super, super helpful. But the key is what's helpful for you. So what is actually going to promote you to be more consistent in Bible reading? Don't be always looking to someone next to you, because what helps them might not help you. So I can give you my own opinion on some of the resources if you want. That's not really the goal. Uh, I do have opinions on some of them. uh, But whatever's helpful for someone to get into the scriptures, I'm going to applaud. But certain resources are going to be helpful for you that aren't helpful for me, and helpful for me, not helpful for you. For example, uh, my wife, Danica, she reads, uh, I guess I didn't ask her to share this, but uh, uh, she uses the, the ESV Study Bible. And it's a great resource. I think the ESV Study Bible is Uh, from the ones I've looked at, is perhaps the best one I've seen. I think they do a wonderful, wonderful job in the ESV study Bible. She likes to read with that. I cannot read with a study Bible when I'm doing devotional reading. I just cannot do it. It's way too distracting for me, because all I want to do is get down to the notes. And for me, in those moments, it's just not helpful. I end up getting distracted. I'm asking, I'm going down bunny trails that I'm not necessarily like looking to go down. Now, if I'm studying for a sermon or something like that, yes, I want to chase down every question that pops in my head. And I want to hear other voices, what they're saying. When I'm reading more devotionally, I'm not always looking to do that. And so for me, I have to get rid of distractions. Other people don't need that. And you can be more disciplined where she, she only looks down at the bottom when she feels like she needs help or has a question. I can't do that. So you have to learn yourself. What is actually going to be helpful for you to remain faithful and consistent Bible reading. All right. Number five, uh, set yourself up for success. So there's certain things you can do that are going to actually help promote you to take another step. So, uh, for example, early on in our marriage, one of the things we discovered when we, like, we've discovered our own mental health and body that we need to be uh, exercising regularly. Otherwise, we both kind of go crazy, which you've probably seen. But So we uh, make sure that we have to exercise, go to the gym. And one of the things we realized early in our marriage is that if you were to ask me the night before if I'm going to the gym the next day, and I said, I probably am, I'm not going. If I said, as as long as I have time, I'm going to get there. There's a high probability I'm not going. If my answer is not clear, like, yes, I'm going, I'm going to find 100 reasons not to go. Why? Because it's sweat. It's soul sweat or body sweat. And the same thing for for Bible reading. So one of the things that we discovered then, uh, one of the things that Danica would do uh, if she was going early in the morning was actually pack her bag for the gym the night before, set it all there right by the door in this ready-to-go spot, having all the gym clothes ready so that the night before, she's already getting her mind prepared for it and is right there. So she's already done a lot of the work so that when she gets up, boom, she goes for it. And so you can do the very same thing with Bible reading. These are just little things that what's going to actually help me when the question starts popping in my head, ah, do I really have time to read the Bible? I've already kind of moved my heart in that direction. So, for example, one of the things that we've done is we, we typically read in the same spot at the kitchen table every morning or most mornings, right, that we're together, and we, not every day, but sometimes it's like I, my, Bible, my Bible is kept right here on the table. I don't have to move it that far, but I might put it right where I'm going to sit. It's just something simple mentally. I'm just preparing myself. When I wake up, that's what I'm doing. Uh, now, it doesn't have to be in the morning. I mean, that's, not, that's not the point. Uh, but preparing yourself that way. So you're putting your Bible out uh, if, if you can. That could be one help. Or if you like to read, say, uh, with a blanket on, you have a favorite blanket, or you have certain pens or something like that, get those out. Get them ready. And even the thought process can be helpful. Another thing you can do, uh, you know, hours before Uh, find a way to think about what passage you're going to be reading. So if you're going through some sort of a plan, if you read in the morning, uh, you can do this while you're getting ready for bed or as you're getting the kids down for bed or something. Just thinking to yourself, okay, what passage am I reading tomorrow? Oh, yes, I'm reading this passage. You're just getting your brain ready for it. And it's going to increase your success rate. Or you think backwards. Now, what did I read earlier today? Oh, yes, I read this. Again, you're just getting your mind going In that direction. Another thing you can do is is try to complete surrounding tasks early on. So again, if you're doing, I'm just using morning for the example, if in the morning you are reading and yet you also have to make your lunch and you have to do certain things for work or for the kids, uh, you got to make the kids lunch or whatever, perhaps you can do some of those tasks the night before so the Bible reading doesn't get crowded out. And once again, as you're doing that, be praying, asking the Lord, God, uh, help me to Open up your word tomorrow. So a lot of this is just preparing yourself. What you're trying to do is set yourself up for success uh, of what you want to do. Again, we know this in a lot of areas of life. We can transfer it right over to Bible reading. All right, last one. Uh, Let's motivation. We'll close with this. Um, And this is an important one. We want to work at learning how to persuade our hearts by grace rather than legalism persuading our heart with grace rather than legalism. So there's two very contrasting ways of how to approach Bible reading and how to prepare your heart. Uh, The same activity, reading the Bible, very different heart posture, and very different results. So legalism, uh, legalism is anything we look to, uh, some sort of performance, uh, some, some sort of activity that we do that somehow not only gets God to like us or accept us, but keeps that. It keeps God's favor. Right? So, so someone approaching Bible reading uh, will, uh, with a legalistic motivation will actually, they probably won't say it out loud. If you truly know the Lord, you wouldn't say it out loud. But internally, there's this feeling that your performance in Bible reading or the lack thereof determines whether or not God likes you today. Or if God wants to be with you today, or near you today. And so the way that shows up sometimes is if you struggled to, to read the scriptures uh, yesterday morning, you s- struggled to read it this- today, you didn't have a great day at work today, you kind of struggled in anxiety, and you had small group that night, there's this feeling inside, like, I don't even know if I should go. I don't even know if, like, the Lord doesn't really want to meet with me. I'm better off just staying home. There's these subtle ways that we actually have this feeling of my Bible reading is determining whether or not God likes me today. But the the gospel approach says, no, there's absolutely nothing I could possibly do that increases God's favor upon me or decreases God's favor upon me. God's favor is on me solely because of the work of Jesus on my behalf. That's it. And for for me to at all think that my performance in life contributes to God liking me more, That's offensive to the Lord Jesus. That's telling the Lord Jesus, Jesus, your death on my behalf was good. I appreciate that. But that was not good enough to get God's favor for me. I I need a little bit more. I need to perform a little bit more so that God looks on me and likes me. So I need to perform well. And so motivating our hearts with grace then says there's nothing I could possibly do that that would have God like me more. And what happens when you can do that, you actually start getting empowered and having a desire to read because you realize that we're not reading to keep a righteousness or gain a righteousness. We're actually reading to live out a righteousness that we already have received from God. The Christian is righteous, the righteousness of Christ, that we are perfected before God, not in practice, but positionally, we are perfected before God. And as we read the scriptures, intake the scriptures, it then produces that, practically speaking, that righteousness, righteousness to live it out. So the results, though, of legalism uh, can be damaging, very damaging. That not only robs God of his glory in the cross by us saying our performance somehow keeps God liking us, that tells Jesus his work wasn't enough, also puffs up with spiritual pride before God, before other people. Uh, it can lead to a lot of con- condemnation. If you ever had that feeling of low-grade guilt because your spiritual disciplines aren't very good, that's coming out of a legalistic heart, that somehow God is looking unfavorably on you because you're not doing what he's asked you to do. Now, to be sure, God can be grieved that his, that his people are not following in the ways that he's set up, just like a parent can be grieved for their child who's rejecting them. But the love of a parent for a child, that's not going to change. Neither is God's love for his people. And a, a very subtle way also that you can find legalism connected to Bible reading that it comes out, is uh, let's say life, you experience some hardship in life, and it's, you have some grumbling going on in your soul, and the grumbling goes something like this, I don't understand, I'm doing everything I'm supposed to do, and yet the, still this hardship's happening. What's happening there is you're, we're expecting, God, if I do my Bible reading, and, I, and I'm gathering with the church, I expect now, I've, I've completed my side of the bargain, you keep your side of the bargain. I've now earned safety and comfort in life. And when it doesn't happen, we grumble against it. like, What's wrong? On the flip side, if you experience fear when hardship comes, is it it because I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing? That too, it's coming out of a legalistic heart because somehow we get that mindset that if if I just, okay, maybe he wants me to read the Bible a little bit more or do A, B, or C, and and then the hardship won't happen. But the results of motivating our hearts by grace, it increases our love for God and increases our humility. And when hardship happens, we run towards the Lord because we, we know that hardship's not coming upon us because God's judgment is upon us. God's judgment f- fell fully on Christ on our behalf. And so we are free, and so we run towards God. Well, let me close with an example and then we'll wrap up. So let's say it's Wednesday morning and uh, you didn't read the Bible yesterday. Uh, You actually had a hard day at work yesterday, Uh, woke up late, it was stressful, kept saying you were going to read the Bible when you got home, but you didn't, went to bed. Woke up late again this morning, and you kind of feel like you should read, but you really don't feel like reading. To top that off, you're reading the book of Isaiah, and you're kind of in the middle of it, and you really don't know what Isaiah is talking about at this point. And you think, what should I do? Well, the legalist, he's going to really put his... Put the, the, the gavel down and say, you better read. You got a small group tonight. You don't read, you're going to have nothing to take to them. You better read, otherwise God's not going to want to meet with you. He's not going to want to hear from you. That'll be two days in a row. You, you better read. Now, by the way, just so you know, you don't know what's happening in Isaiah. What does that say about you? You probably don't even know the Lord. Who are you? You better read that's damaging, that's frustrating, and that is very hard. I've experienced that. I'm guessing many of you have as well. But if we can talk to ourselves with grace, it goes something, I mean, there's a lot of ways you can do this. It goes something more like this. How merciful of a God do I worship? That even despite my failures, my my weaknesses, even despite that, he loves me with an adoring, unstoppable unending love. What kind of God is this that would pour such favor upon me like that? And what grace that whether I read my Bible today or not, he's still going to love me at the end of the day and he'll still want to hear me because he's a loving father. And Lord, I have no clue what's going on in Isaiah right now. And frankly, I don't even think I'm going to get anything out of this as I read it today. But I do trust that you have said that if I Put my heart before your word that you will grow me like a tree. I don't see how that's going to happen today, but I trust you, and I trust that one more drip on my soul will be a good effect. And so I'm going to read. I ask that you would do something. I'm not expecting it to be right now, but I trust over the long haul you will grow me like a tree planted by streams of water. So help me, God. And then you read. To me, that is going to be a lot more empowering and encouraging